Hey, 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 it's your weekly corner spady. Uh, uh, it's me, Kieran, joined by Nick. Hey. And Rob. What's up? And uh, this week, we've got a very uh, uh, um, serious, well, uh, uh, important, let's call it important, uh, uh, discussion with uh, Ben Aries, the uh, founder and editor of uh, BNA, uh, uh, BNE IntelliNews. Uh, which has been, if anyone remembers, one of the people I shouted out as uh, uh, when the invasion happened as someone to pay attention to uh, uh, about a lot of this stuff, particularly economics. And we had a very good conversation with him about sanctions and what they're doing to Russia, uh, how dependent we are on Russia, and uh, uh, um, shattering a little-known myth. Did you, did you hear this John McCain quote? <laughs> you know, he's, it's just a petrol stage. What is the actual quote? Does anyone remember the thing he, like... There's a supercut of him saying it over and over again. He thinks it's, like, the funniest joke in the world. <laughs> um, I have purged everything from my sweet little Arizona brain. About... Anything John McCain-related, mm, except for when he thinks bomb, bomb, bomb Iran. Yeah, uh, uh, um, Megan McCain, what's his daughter's name again? She just sprung up out of the ground. She's not from anywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like aphids. They just clone. Exactly. All right. Without further ado, let's just go into the interview. All right. We're joined now with uh, Ben Aris of uh, BNE IntelliNews, the editor. Uh, um, and we're going to talk about sanctions uh, because I think that's, I think that's important. Uh, uh, um, because I try to keep up with this stuff, but to be honest, it's um, it's very difficult for me. <laughs> I'm not the most literate with this kind of stuff. Uh, I can tell you who's in Parliament in like Estonia, but I couldn't tell you anything about sanctions. Um, so we uh, felt we should turn to uh, someone I've been. Uh, trusting a lot of the writing of, as well as other podcasts uh, and media uh, appearances, have been talking very coherently about what's happening. Uh, um, so, yeah, Ben, thank you very much for coming on. Hey, it's my pleasure to be here. Yeah, and happy St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> yes, that's right, of course, it is. <laughs> I'm wearing my Aaron sweater. I went to the Aaron supply shop. I paid too much money for uh, things I could have got for cheaper back home. But <laughs> we're well, I've, got, I've got some green on. I've got some green, a sort of token Thanks. nod to St. Patrick. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, um, but I also say that so that you know people listening at home know what date it is when we're recording, and if anything we say is out of date, they know why. <laughs> uh, um, so yeah, I, I guess that my first question for you is: uh, What are the state of the current sanctions? Uh, uh, it's been very hard for I think uh, a lot of people to keep up with. Uh, uh, yeah, like there was early announcements. Uh, people were shocked by like Nord Stream two being like uh, announced as cancelled or you know, pulled back on in some capacity. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could uh, give us a, a brief description of what's what's basically in effect now. Yeah, to give a little bit of the background, <clears throat> my um, point of view is this is uh, Putin's been building up to this for about 14 years, and he was fully aware that the West would sanction um, in the extreme because the military option was always on the table as far as he was concerned. And in fact, I think he expected it. And he expected extreme sanctions. But <clears throat> that being said, the sanctions that actually came down are even more extreme than the Kremlin was expecting, right. in so much as they've been caught out by a few of them. So in the lead up to um, the invasion, which is what tipped it over the top, 
um, there were lots of sanctions discussed, and um, we we went through and the idea and the way the sanctions have been applied to Russia since 2014 when they annexed Crimea is they've been put on incrementally. And sanctions are supposed to be a diplomatic tool in order to enable negotiations in order to get to some goal that you want to. Mm. And the sanctions for 2014 were very much like that, in so much as they started with hitting individuals who um, organized the referendum, so-called, in uh, Crimea. And then they started to hit various, like, bonds, but then they were doing things like forbidding people to buy the primary issue when they actually mm. sell the bonds. But that's a bit pointless because if you're an investor, you can buy them two seconds later on the secondary market for almost exactly the same price. So these these sanctions were designed to sort of raise the costs, uh, increase the risks, but um, still allow Russian to function. However, it went up a scale. It went up a level. Uh, last April, when Putin put 100,000 troops on the border with uh, Ukraine, just before he met with Biden, and the talks with Biden weren't going that well because to understand the whole story, this is all about Putin's desire to exclude Ukraine from NATO. And since 1999, NATO's been expanding. In 1998, Russia had a huge crisis. It was flattened its back. It couldn't do anything about it. But Ukraine for, <clears throat> for Russia is a red line. Mm-hmm. And the reason being, it's similar to the Cuban Missile Crisis in so much as what he's afraid of. And it should be said that NATO has not been offered to Ukraine, nor is it on the agenda, because France and Germany are very aware that Russia would freak out. Um, But he's afraid of eventual NATO. He's looking far in the future, and he wants to get rid of this issue once and for all, which is why he's triggered this whole crisis and brought it to, to a head. Because the problem is, is that the Ukrainian border in the east is with European Russia, where 80% of the population live, where most of the big cities are, and the missile flight times are under five minutes, and you cannot defend against that. Yeah. So Putin sees this as an existential threat, and while he's acted now, sort of 10 years ahead of when it even could be beginning to be possible to contemplate Ukraine joining NATO, he wants to get rid of it, he wants to end the issue before those missiles arrive, and then Russia's dealt an unwinnable hand. Hmm. So, like I say, the, we were expecting the sanctions to be put on in layers, and they were talking about, you know, hitting oligarchs. Um, they were talking about um, going up the tree um, in terms of officials, um, up to and including uh, sanctioning Putin himself. Hmm. The Americans brought out a bill where they named 13 banks, half of them state banks, the other half commercial banks, sure. and were intending to include banks one after the other. Nord Stream 2 was mentioned from the beginning, but it was always assumed that that would be one of the last sanctions to go in because for the Germans, um, it means energy security because the current pipelines run through Ukraine and Russia's at war with Ukraine. So having your main energy supply run through a war zone doesn't make much sense. Plus, it's much cheaper. I mean, we we have to pay $2 billion a year transit fees to Ukraine the, the Nord Stream 2 goes under the Baltic Sea. It doesn't go through any countries. It just arrives directly in Germany. Hmm. So it's more secure. It's modern. It's cheaper. And moreover, it taps into the Yamal fields in Russia's Arctic, which is where all their gas is. And the Ukrainian right. one taps into a Western Siberian field, which is almost empty. Right. Then there was um, 
what else? SWIFT, uh, the International Monetary Tran uh, Transfer System. And that was also seen as a bit of a nuclear option in so much as <clears throat> if you cut Russia off from SWIFT, it can't make international payments, nor can anyone pay it. And so it makes it impossible for Germany to pay for its gas imports because Germany still relies on, for a third on, on Russian gas imports. So we kind of discounted SWIFT, saying that won't happen because it causes an energy crisis. And then Russia invaded on February 24th. And not only did Nord Stream 2 get killed by the Germans immediately, which yeah. was a shock, yeah. um, <clears throat> but they also went for SWIFT straight away, which is also a shock. Uh, and in effect, that bans the, the biggest banks, the state-owned banks, Sperbank and VTB, which together hold half of all of Russia's deposits, half the population mm. is in those two banks. And they um, took them out of SWIFT and effectively made it impossible for them to use dollars. Mm. And you have to understand the Russians, having been through many current currency crises, um, keep most of their savings in dollars, but they've been keeping them in the banks because they want you know, some sort of return. Yeah. And so that caused a run on the banks. And now the central bank is being caught with its trousers down because the banks have like $280 billion of liabilities, but only $46 billion in cash so that they, um, they don't have enough, enough money. But of course, if spare can't trade in dollars, you can't right. keep your money there. So everyone's runs are taken out. So the banks are in trouble. But the, uh, the real shocker oh. that came totally out of left field was when the European Union um, seized $300 billion, half of Russia's international reserves that are held in central banks across Europe, uh, froze those. And that, that was not expected. Um, and that is a game changer because suddenly Russia had built up this $600, what is it, $43 billion, which was supposed to sanction-proof Russia. It was very hard to sanction it with so much money because it could just buy its way out of any corner. And suddenly, overnight, half of that money has disappeared. And at the same time, you've got big runs on the banks. The central bank is short $200 billion in, of cash in order to cover those bank deposits. Mm. And then they've got bonds to pay, um, whatever it is, $7 or $8 billion this year, which they need cash for. And so suddenly Russia's found it itself in a, in, in a very hard position. And then the final thing I say on sanctions is the, the things that weren't sanctioned. But all of this has made Russia completely toxic to the point where people just simply won't do business with it. So, for example, the, because of the result of this crisis, oil prices shot up to near the all-time high of around $147. So, in theory, money should be raining into Russia. But you talk to the oil traders, and they won't touch Russian oil. And even the Chinese banks won't issue letters of credit to non-sanctioned banks because they're afraid of getting sanctioned, because they're afraid of the risk. And so even the oil that they should be able to sell and make money out of suddenly has become difficult to sell. And this is before a ban on, on importing Russian oil has appeared. I mean, apart from the States, which is tiny. But, but um, so you've got this knock-on effect because Russia is, again, like it was in 98, the last big crisis, has become completely toxic. And I don't think the Kremlin was expecting any of that either. It's gone much further, much faster, much more severe than anyone was expecting. Sure, yeah. And like I, I do remember basically just being surprised by a lot of actions. I I, I think like a lot of people I felt like uh, like you said, I thought Nord Stream two would be a card they would hold close to their chest for a bit longer. Uh, um same as Swift, but 
yeah, the the taking the reserves, I, I, I haven't seen a lot of chat of that actually happening. Uh, it wasn't mentioned. I mean, in fourteen uh, since twenty fourteen, the taking the CBR reserves was never mentioned. It was it never came up. It just completely out of the blue and incredibly effective. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the uh, um, kind of uh, tactical criticisms made towards uh, um, mentioning like cutting Russia off from SWIFT banking. Because I do remember that being talked about in like uh, um, twenty fourteen after Crimea and stuff that like oh we should consider this and like i think i heard people say that was a tactical blunder because as soon as you say um <laughs> as soon as you say uh, um like oh we could take you off of swift i, I have to feel like someone in, in moscow is thinking well let's plan for when we're taken off of swift um so i guess yeah yeah there was a the the thing with um because Moscow for the last few weeks has continuously just been like, oh, we've we've been we've prepared for this. Like we have, you know, sanction measures. I know from my job that's been like definitely a thing that they assumed up until maybe like a week ago hmm. that there was this like Putin even like continuously mentioned on press conferences like we have anti-sanction measures this and that and that they made that like new version of like an exclusive uh, version of SWIFT between uh, India and China called Mir which um, probably won't work <laughs> because it's only between three countries but they like uh, well they've been preparing for SWIFT I mean it got mentioned in 2014 and the Russians at that point saw that it could happen. And so they've been setting up their own internal payment system, which works fine. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, they've been setting up an international one, um, which the Mir payment system is is the domestic one. And the other one is uh, SNDF, I think it's called. Um, And the Chinese have uh, bought into that and the Indians. But as you say, it's very limited. It's a lot less efficient. But it kind of works, so there's a way. But we're sort of back into the 90s now with these, like, bodged-together yeah. systems that kind of work very inefficiently. And mm-hmm. Swift uh, taking it out was, like, you know, a clean, efficient, worldwide system, um, which it, it's – all of these things are designed to disrupt. Um, they can't cut the Russian economy off completely. I mean, Germany's in the awkward position there now where it has to continue to import Russian gas. It has no choice. And it has to pay for that. It has no choice. So you need something there to make it work. So there's sort of holes in these sanctions. They're not like hermetically sealing the country up. Mm. But the point is to do significant damage. So Russia's gro- uh, economy was supposed to grow by 2.5% this year. And we're looking at somewhere between a 8 and 20% contraction mm. as a result of that. Okay. People's savings have been... In, you know, d- devalued away to nothing again. Um, inflation is already going to go. It's going to go to twenty percent. So whatever savings you have left are also going to be eaten away. It's it's a massive economic shock, and that's that's the stick they're we- they're wheeling. It's not economic collapse. It's not like Iran where you can cut it off completely because Russia is yeah. too deeply integrated in the global economy to cut it off completely. Um, I have a question about the uh, these oil and gas prices because, and excuse my ignorance about how exactly it all works. Because, as I understand it, the the gas is is still flowing, right? There's um, and it's actually at um, maximum maximum levels at the moment. Yeah. Um, running through the Ukrainian pipes, running through the war zone, they're still pumping gas to Germany at maximum levels. 
So how, yeah, how exactly does it work that we have this flow? The just price wise, I've seen numbers that just the the, the spike in uh, gas more than offsets you know any oil that that, that might be um, like something like I think uh, Germany was paying like seven hundred million or maybe that was Europe a day for or that that was the estimated value of the gas, which more than offsets any potential losses from oil. Russia is will pay its contracts in rubles or is threatening to, and I think any day now. Uh, I don't I don't know when the next payment came due, and then what you mentioned that that the traders won't won't touch Russian uh, gas or oil. So how I'm like how is this all working? <laughs> this I think I'm missing something. Well, look, a couple of things there. I mean, the first thing you you have to make a clear distinction between the oil business and the gas business. Mm-hmm. And oil business, um, oil is delivered by ship. And the infrastructure and the volumes and the amount of capacity shipwise um, is sufficient to run the whole world. So, for example, uh, America banned the imports of Russian oil last week, I think it was. Um, but it's an insignificant amount. It's about 2% of Russian exports. Um, it's also a tiny share for America. And they were just trying to replace some oil that they lost uh, from Venezuela when they sanctioned that. But it makes no difference. I mean, America is pretty much self-sufficient in oil already. And the, in terms of the income for Russia, the, the American ban, all they do is they just turn the ship around and send it to a different market. So that ship that was going to the States ends up in Singapore, sold to traders there. Those traders sell it to Malaysia. Those Malaysian traders sell it to Caribbean, and boom, it ends up in the States again anyway, except it's owned by somebody else. Sure. Gas is a completely different business. Gas is um, a non-market business because the bulk of gas – um, is in a pipeline. And pipelines, you've got someone who puts it in and you've got someone who takes it out. And if you bust up with the person, your customer takes it out, you can't change the destination. It only goes to one place. So it's an de- interdependency from both sides. The Russians have to sell gas to the Germans and the Germans have to buy it. So you can't change that. Um, What's happened more recently in the gas market is the advent of LNG, liquid natural gas, and that you can put on ships. And so then it becomes commoditized in the same way that oil is, in so much as you can change customers. However, the LNG business is still very young. And there's the rush. If you try to to replace all of Russian pipe gas to Europe with LNG, then you use up a third of the world's entire supply output of LNG. And you cause an energy crisis in Asia where they're very dependent on energy because they haven't got any energy at all. And so it's a very different business. And moreover, Germany's imports, you know, about 30% of its energy is Russian gas. And because you can't move pipelines once they're built, and because it's not enough LNG, and because the EU internal production of gas has been falling quite dramatically because the big fields in Norway and and Holland are, are nearly depleted, that Germany has to import this gas and pay for it. There's no alternative. So there's a mad scramble going on here in in Germany where they're talking about restarting coal-fired plants, restarting nuclear plants, Mm. um, investing heavily into more renewables. Um, The Americans are being lent on to to send extra LNG from their, uh, their side of the pond, and Qatar, also a big producer. And the analysts I talked to, you could probably bodge together enough to get through, but 
it's going to send prices already last year. I mean, the average price of pipe gas is around 250 bucks per thousand cubic. Um, prices on the spot market where you can buy both um, free gas deliveries and LNG has gone up to 2000 bucks, tenfold increase. And currently they're at a between 16 and 20 fold increase. You know, we're seeing prices 3000, even touching up to 4000. And this is going to impact the whole of Europe in so much as your gas bill is going to go up by a factor of 10. So people who were paying 200 bucks or 200 euros a month are start going to pay uh, 2,000, 3,000. Mm. And that's going to cause you major political problems. So they're trying to head this off by finding alternatives. But the trouble with all the alternatives is that they're going to take several years to implement. Yeah. And this is happening now. And they've got to start refilling the tanks this summer. Otherwise, there's going to be a huge crisis, energy crisis in Europe this winter. And we're talking rolling blackouts. We're talking pensioners freezing to death in their houses, that kind of thing. So these, these are serious issues. We're already seeing, uh, uh, I'm not sure how much you've been keeping abreast of this, but we're already seeing like a uh, uh, pushback from, I know France has kind of put in price controls into, into, their, into their gas and heating costs, but like... Mm-hmm. Albania hasn't, and there has already been like massive street protests against yeah. cost of living rises in general. Uh, um, the head of like the GERB party in, in Bulgaria is accusing like the opposition of artificially inflating the gas prices by like buying up all the gas at petrol stations via their youth party. It, it's very a spurious claim, but um, it's a, it's an exp- explanation for high costs. Uh, um, so it already seems to be reverberating. Uh, Absolutely. Like I said before, I mean, you can't cut Russia off. It's too deeply integrated into the mm. global economy. And, you, we, you know, we track inflation across the region. I mean, it's at, you know, all-time 15-year highs in nearly every country. People are getting into double digits very fast. And that's going to have a knock-on effect on everybody. And like you say, Albania, there were already protests Um uh, someone like Hungary, I mean, they've got uh, whatever it is, 15% inflation going upwards. And it's going to cause unemployment, it's wrecking businesses, and the cost. Because the only thing the government can do, it can't pass on 20-fold increases in gas bills to the population. It's just not possible. So it has to cap them, it has to subsidize them. But that comes out of the budget. So then suddenly there's this huge drain on everybody's budgets in order just to maintain prices at elevated levels that's doing a lot of economic damage. So it's, it's already rippling out. You know, the, the, the war's been going on for 20 days and the effects are already rippling out across the whole world. Mm. The, um, there's actually something I, I want to get to a little bit because uh, um, I think we've all heard the very simplistic, I believe it's John McCain, I, I can't remember who said this line of like, uh, and loved repeating it of like Russia is a, a, a what is like glorified petrol station or gas station mm. or something along those lines, which I think is a very simplistic look at what yes. Russia is because uh, I've heard you speak on this before that like like two of the largest copper mines in the world are in Russia. Um, pretty much all the world's aluminium comes from Russia. Uh, um, yeah, so I'm just wondering if you could expand on like the other dependencies <laughs> that uh, Europe and the world has. There's a lot. I mean, we've been trying to work through them. Mm. Um, like I said, gas is extremely important for Europe. Um, oil, Russia is the biggest um, daily producer and exporter. It's bigger than Saudi, although OPEC collectively is much bigger. Mm. Um, 
and metals. Uh, so we just did a piece looking at metals. And again, with all of these things, Russia is not a monopolist in anything. So um, it doesn't produce most of the world's aluminium, but it produces about a third. Okay. But the problem with that is that it has these huge shares in all these markets, but then that gives it enormous mo monopolistic power. So, for example, in 2018, uh, an oligarch called Oleg Deripaska was sanctioned, and it was made illegal to hold any of his securities or even do business with him. Mm. What happened on the London Metal Exchange the next day is that aluminium prices spiked by 40% overnight. And then someone went to the state treasury department and said, do you realize what that means? That means it's going to, you're going to have to add 15 cents to the cost of every can of Coke in America as a result of this, at which point they backed off because the disruption to the economies when you take out a key metal like aluminium is again, reverberate it boomerangs back. You have this boomerang back effect. Right. So the same thing is that um, nickel, I mean, again, Russia produces, um, in Norilsk, in the far north, uh, nickel, which comes together with these platinum group metals, palladium, platinum. And those are key to, to car manufacturing, electric car manufacturing. And if you don't have palladium yeah. or platinum, platinum, then you can't make catalytic converters. And so everyone's heavily dependent on that. If you take that out of the loop, then you're going you, you're gonna to basically hobble the development of the electric car industry. And again, last week, we saw on the London BLME, the London Metal Exchange, hmm. um, nickel prices went up a thousandfold from around whatever it was, you know, I forget the prices, like 20,000 per ton, but it went up to 100,000. They had to suspend trading. Right. And Potanin, who owns Norel's nickel, wasn't even sanctioned. So again, there's this toxicity effect that, that's going on. Um, copper prices, also all-time high. Iron prices. 10-year highs. Because again, Russia is a huge producer of iron the, and, and uh, steel in particular, and especially specialist steel, um, which the oligarchs have invested a lot in their factories. They produce this high-quality specialist steel. And the really, really damaging one is titanium. Mm. And titanium is very light and very strong. And planes contain about 15% titanium because you want light, strong metal in the wings, you know, so you can fly more easily. Yeah. And the, uh, not all the titanium, but a huge amount of titanium comes from Russia. And the Americans are, in particular, Boeing, is almost entirely dependent on Russian titanium. And they just noticeably, other people have withdrawn. Boeing has suspended operations. Yeah but it hasn't withdrawn because they, like the Germans, they're stuck. They're completely dependent on this supply. And, and the prices, again, in all of these commodities are going shooting up. But the last one, and probably the most important commodity of all, is grain, right. wheat. Yeah. And this is a relatively new thing for Russia. That over the last 10, 15 years, they've been investing heavily in agriculture, partly because they want to become self-sufficient. And everyone damns Putin for doing their reforms. Actually, this has been a spectacularly successful reform. And Russia is now the biggest grain exporter in the world. And to add to the problems that Ukraine is also up there with Russia, exports yeah. nearly the same amount. Trouble is, all the wheat fields in Ukraine are in East Ukraine, just around where the Donbass is and to the left of that. 
So we're expecting none or little Ukrainian grain this year. So you're taking out, and between them, they account for a third of the world's supply. The Middle East is entirely or largely dependent on Russian and Ukrainian grain. So you're going to remove <clears throat> a sixth of the world's grain supply completely. And the Russians, um, well, the Chinese just threw open their market for grain to Russia, which is new. And so Russia's just going to switch its grain exports to China. And that's going to leave the rest of us with no grain. So you're talking about bread prices, I don't know what, doubling, trebling. And the inflation in bread prices or grain prices is already at the same level as it was in 2011, which sparked the Arab Spring. So I was just reading about Middle East and the governments there are scrambling to get grain. Egypt uh, has four months left and has had two auctions and can't buy it anymore. Yeah. And they're expecting massive inflation and social unrest and, and probably another, I don't know, huge political problems, mass demonstrations are going to break out down there. Because the other problem with grain is that um, it hits poorer countries where food makes up a much larger share of the basket. So in here in Germany, you know, we can just switch to, I don't know, something else. We can eat potatoes or jackfruit or bananas instead. Um, but in the poor countries, if you take bread away or make it super expensive, Mm. <clears throat> that has massive re social and political repercussions. Of course. I mean, yeah, it, it's it's wild. Uh, <clears throat> I, I remember mentioning the the Egypt being dependent on Russian grain, and I remember uh, uh, saying this to a lot of like uh, medieval historian friends, finding that very weird because Egypt was like historically famous for yeah. being like a massive breadbasket. Um, yeah, and I can't imagine Ukraine is going to do much more. Uh, I'm I'm kind of curious. I remember uh, um, stories of particularly 2014 uh, when like the first round of sanctions against Russia happened uh, uh, in response to like Crimea and uh, um, the backing of the rebels in DNR LNR. Um, I remember like footage of these trade shows in Russia of like Russian-made mozzarella. And things like that, and, um, and like interviewing, like doing vox pops with people at the convention, saying, "Oh, it's just as good as the Italian stuff we used to buy," which I'm sure it is. Like, I, it's not, there's nothing. It's not. I, could, oh, I was, I was, I was living in Moscow in 2014, and then cheese, cheese, cheese was an interesting one because it just totally disappeared, and it was symptomatic of the basic Russian problem because um, the ruble was relatively strong, and the cheese is high quality and relatively cheap. Yeah. And so there's no incentive for anyone to set up cheese production because you're going to make a worse product that's going to cost more than the imported French version. So it just didn't exist. And consequently, when those agro sanctions came in, uh, cheese just disappeared from the market entirely. Right. And it took six to eight months. There's a lady, um, famous lady who lives in Siberia, and she flew to Paris and she bought the mold and flew back to Siberia and started making Siberian camembert. <laughs> and and she was actually quite good. And her camembert got really famous because it tasted more or less like the French version. Okay. So it came very hard to get hold of because she just couldn't make enough because uh, there wasn't any cheese you know, to be had. Mm. And the traditional Russian cheeses are pretty horrible. So, oh. uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, all right. So that, that, that is interesting. And I guess, um, um, I'm curious about getting into the the the, the weeds of the the Nord Stream two deal because I've heard I know that the status is that um, it's yeah the certification is not going forward but 
could, in theory, go for it no, again. The Nord Stream 2 Agaze is insolvent. Yeah, what, what happened? It's been built. It's finished. Yeah. It's been filled with technical gas. You could turn it on tomorrow and it would work, literally tomorrow, and it would supply. Um, the capacity is 55. The Nord Stream 1 is 55, and currently there's 40 going through Ukraine. So you could completely replace Ukraine's supplies with Nord Stream 2. What happened, though, is the German regulator, the final step, has to sign off, has to approve it, give it, give it a permit. And package documents, because every, at every, it's, it's got German investors and, and European investors in it. And at every stage, it got certified and permission, and it's all legal. And what Schulz did when he killed it, the way he killed it, is he removed some documents from this package relating to, I forget exactly what, something to do with safety and security in Europe. But... These documents were essential, and it cannot be approved without them. So it's a red tape thing. And also it suggests if you can remove these documents, you can put them back very easily. So he's left himself an option to restart it at any time, which could either be the underlying desire for the Germans to have this pipeline, or it could also be a negotiating tactic or both. But um, in effect, without this document, while the Germans are sitting on that one, uh, it can't go ahead. And there's been rumors that it's gone bankrupt, but I don't know, it's, it's bankrolled by Gazprom, and Gazprom has lots of money, and as I say, it's already finished. There's not that much to spend on it, a bit of maintenance, but not, not a lot. Just so it's just sitting there. Point, right? Yeah, well, yeah, and it would make huge profits. I mean, the, the money that's been invested is going to be a write-off of it. No, it's going to be a huge white elephant sort of mm. sitting there under the Baltic Sea, while its sister pipe next door um, is working at full volume. Um, and I, I guess there's just like one thing that I want to add before we move on, which is, uh, uh, um, or ask basically, is we've done a lot of talking of what I think you could describe as like primary industry, like agricultural, mining, mm. these rare earths, natural gas, things taken from the ground and then sold. But the, but I feel like that's even a very kind of simplistic image of Russia. I, I think even, so the, the unsophisticated view is that like, you know, a petrol station run by a mafia kind of view of Russia, and then you take it one step further and say, okay, they have a lot of these rare earth metals, they have, uh, like you said, nickel and copper, um, but then you still have this image of Russia as not being something that provides um, services, manufactured products, uh, um, what I think Western Europeans would kind of consider like, I don't know, high industry uh, um which I don't believe is true. I, I've heard you mention uh, uh, Luxor before, which, uh, if I'm getting the name right, which is mm -hmm. a, a, a software company that is kind of like, for, is circulating around the aviation industry as well. Uh, yeah, I mean, all the software in your car, in the yeah. States, um, in the planes, uh, mm -hmm. is written by Luxor. And um, it, it's a spinoff in so much as there's a Russian company called, um, what was it, the BNS, um that had domestic business and started doing exports. And the export business grew so much that they actually floated, separated and floated in an international version. Right. And no, th th it's a myth. It's a misconception. Um, people tend to look at Russia and think of it in the crazy 90s when it was all broken and they had nothing. Yeah. And it's come on by leaps and bounds. And now today, um, the most valuable tech company in all of Europe, the most sophisticated tech company in all of Europe, is Yandex, the yeah. Russian search engine. And Yandex is out-googling Google. Yandex Maps is far superior to Google Maps. And 
it, there's a, in in the tech space and the high te- and the high tech industry and online. Um, you know, the the Russians are leaping ahead, innovating, and the integration of tech and retail has got to the point now where the Russians are ahead of Europeans in many ways because of the innovations. It's called the leapfrog effect. The advantage of not having legacy systems means you go straight to state of the art. Yeah. And at the same time, you have this enormous pool of incredibly talented programmers and what have you. And so something like retail, where they're building it from scratch, if you're Sainsbury's or Tesco's or Spa or, you know, you know Bill yeah. in Germany, Biller, then you have all this legacy technology, you have all this legacy real estate, legacy um, distribution fleet with people with pensions you can't sack. And the Russians have gone straight to 15-minute delivery. Mm. They've gone straight to dark warehouses, little ones in urban areas, so they can get you groceries within five minutes. And do that cheaply, too, because there are labor cost advantages as well. And in other areas, too, I mean, um, as I said, I mean, the investment into to steel, so they're producing high-tech steels. Mm. Um, services, the services sector is flourishing. It makes up nearly half the economy now. And again, that's made easier in Russia because everybody's concentrated um, in these huge cities. And the city of Moscow by itself has more, has a bigger population than the entire Czech Republic. Yeah. So you've got country-sized cities where retail is incredibly profitable, but it's incredibly easy to organize too because you're dealing with 13, 15 million people, all who live within the space of whatever it is, 100 kilometers. And all of that's driven you know, on, on steroids, a lot of these businesses. And on top of that, you also have to take into account the fact that Russia has a population of just under 150 million people. Mm. So it's half the size of Germany, bigger again. Yeah. So that if you have any business connected to retail services and you can make it work, you're, you're suddenly a billionaire. Whereas if you try to do the same business in Czech Republic, where, or if you went to Estonia, where there's only 1.5 million people, you can have the best business in the world and you'll still be paying yourself like pennies. Um, so that creates a huge pool of capital, of wealth amongst entrepreneurs who then just go from project to project. And like I say, people underestimate how far, how fast it's gone. And that's also going to undermine the sanctions because the Russian economy is much more self-sufficient and it's of a size that it functions quite happily only dealing with the domestic market. Yeah. which also proofs it from sanctions. So having said that, those companies, particularly in the tech sector, I mean, tech is by inherently a global business, uh, and they've been cut off from that. And a lot of the innovation is now going to be killed off because they, uh, they can't go global. Um, they're going to have to stick with uh, domestic, which means they're going to have to go back to core functions. So it's another heavy blow. But like I said before, you can't seal the Russian economy off. It's just too big. Um, and even it's it's got this base, this this domestic base, um, which will support all of the businesses. But I don't know, talking to friends in Moscow, um, small businesses are already closing up shop just in the last two, three weeks. You know, the, the triple hits of devaluation, so their rubles are worth nothing. They can't import anymore because the cost of that has gone up by half. Um, incomes are going to fall. Uh, everyone's husbanding their money, so consumption's crashed. Mm. Um, the, just the general massive squeeze. But my friend was saying to me, yeah, but look, we, we've done this several times. We know how to do it. It's just like I'm now 55. It's starting to get really boring. Um, <laughs> we thought we'd finished with that. But here we are again. We know what to do. Yeah. 
I want to jump on a few of those things you mentioned, specifically the uh, the dark warehouse or any of those companies. I'd like if you have any other details to share. I find it very interesting as an example of uh, the you know where the where the world economy is going. But but the dark warehouses in particular. I mean, we're all based in Berlin. That's a that's a popular topic here. And there is a small Russian company doing deliveries in Berlin called uh, Wuplo. Was oh, that um, they're Russian are they? Yeah. Oh, okay. But they're just in Charlottenburg. They're not very okay. not very big. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's you gotta start somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Where all the Russians live, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah. French Charlottenburg. <laughs> yeah, I've got a good example. Um so we had um what's it called? Um uh, Macromedia, the German white goods, the uh, consumer electronics goods company. And um they were selling and doing extremely well. And then they had two rivals, NVIDIA and uh, Eldorado two Russian electronics goods companies. And these two companies merged, the two Russian ones, um, and they've now created what is, by revenue, the biggest white goods um, retailer in all of Europe. Hmm. And Macromedia, uh, Metromedia, isn't it? I forget. Yeah, yeah. Macromedia is the company that Adobe bought. They made Flash and stuff like that. Right. Metromedia, the big German company. Yeah. Um, They gave up. Uh, okay. they couldn't compete with them. And so what they did is, uh, and they were doing great guns. I mean, they're huge. They have such stores everywhere. Yeah. And so they just, um, they left the market. They were driven out because of competition, because okay. they were being outcompeted. Um, and in the end, they um, they gave up all their stores. They swapped their assets for whatever it was, 14, 15% in the NVIDIA Eldorado merge thing. So they still have a, a stake. And the Eldorado and Video um, were just in the beginning of expanding into Europe. And we were seeing lots of Russian companies start to do that, um, moving into Europe, setting up in Scandinavia. Hmm. They've always gone to Ukraine and places like that and what they call the near abroad very quickly. But they were starting to open in Poland, in Hungary. Um, Wildberries, very successful e-commerce site, is already in most of Western Europe. Right. And the same with manufacturing. Um, I was talking to IKEA, and IKEA has always been keen on Russia, and partly because Russia has so much wood, because yeah. it always had a problem sourcing wood. Um, and they invested in um, by giving soft loans and what have you to Russian companies making furniture. Um, and now, what's happened because of the last evaluation and the fact that wages, effective real wages, have fallen to below those of China. Hmm. that spurred a massive boom in light manufacturing. And that's only been driven further by all the e-commerce because then that's opened small producers up to the entire country where the e-commerce companies like Ozon, they take care of all the delivery. But it means you can sit in Pam or Murmansk or Magadan or in the middle of nowhere, produce whatever, a nice tea towel. And then if you sell it online through Ozon, you can sell 150 million of these things. And that's led to this this boom in light manufacturing, which again was accelerating. I mean, what Putin's done is absolutely tragic. The country was really starting to come together after whatever it is, 20 years. It really was starting to work well. And he's killed it all overnight. And all those small manufacturers, you know, they're going to go to the war. Few of them will survive hmm. and will take 10 years to rebuild their business. Right. Yeah, this is uh, maybe... Maybe it's too cynical a, a, a viewpoint, but this is why I, I I remember why I didn't you know believe the invasion was going to happen because I remember uh, um, comments being made by like people in the ECB being like if we do more sanctions like this is really going to fuck European businesses. Uh, um, so I was like I I kind of 
you know, money is God, money is king kind of thing. I was like, well, there's your answer. It's not going to happen. Kind of like yeah. too much money here, uh, um, which is why it's so perplexing that it even went ahead. Um, and it's also we're pointing out that uh, if we're talking about Berlin delivery services for for five seconds, uh, I believe the Finnish company Volt, uh, uh, which now does a lot of food delivery in Berlin, they got their start by going into Russia and Russia's near abroad as like these markets they there's a uh, there's a lot of money to be made it seems yeah, yeah. i mean all, all the foreign companies uh, who deal with retail i've talked to uh, i talked to leroy marlin um french diy firm mm. and the 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 chairman was french but pretty much everybody else in the company was russian right and he, he, i was saying how's that work it's just fantastic these people are hard-working talented you know it's like the economic uh, the wirtschaftswunder in germany post-war right. post-soviet union Nothing from before was relevant, and this generation and the last generation are like, we, it's all up to us. We have to build something new. And so they work hard, and they're rewarded. And he told me that Russia is a gold mine. Yeah. The profits here are huge. The rate, the rate of growth is huge. Um, we fund it all out of retained earnings. We don't need to borrow. We have no debt. And um, we just like 20%, 30% growth each year is normal. And so we're just now filling out the corners and he was doing the same thing, was looking for manufacturers, local manufacturers to replace the expensive stuff or less expensive stuff he had to still import from places like China. Mm. And he said, like, the outlook for the next five years, fantastic. We're just going to continue to do that. The economy will deepen, widen and become more sophisticated. Yeah. So um, all of that's been thrown onto the back. Um, but it's the size of the consumer market that's one of Russia's strengths. And the momentum it has means it will get through this. It will. This will be a really nasty crisis, probably the worst of the eight that's been since 91. But as for being taken surprised by the invasion, everybody was in so much as we could see from the beginning that, and I've been arguing for years, actually, that there needs to be a new security deal hmm. because Putin's been fixated on this NATO question. Yeah. And we said from the beginning when this started in December, when, when the Ministry of Foreign Affairs issued its demands, including guaranteeing no NATO legal guarantees, that um, Putin was going to go all the way. He wasn't going to back down. And that meant that there was a possibility of violence. But what we didn't expect, when, when the, the second round of normal diplomacy collapsed at the end of February, was led by Macron, um, I was like, right, so now it gets nasty. Now it could be guns. But I was expecting several intermediate stages, yeah. like they would put nuclear missiles into Kaliningrad or they would bomb an airfield in, in Ukraine, do something nasty, but not I enough to trigger was, the whole thing. I was of the opinion they would recognize LNR, DNR, and that would be it. Like that would just be like one escalation before going into invasion. But Well, I mean, another option, an intermediate option, would have been to... Um, recognize them as independent, then the new independent leadership would then invite Russian troops in. Yeah. And then the Russian troops are in there secretly, could all come out of the woods. Uh, and that would be very provocative. But yeah. it probably wouldn't have triggered the whole cascade of sanctions. But to march across the eastern border and the northern border mm. with the full army, just nobody expected that. Yeah. But yeah, it was a shock to everybody. Um, and and galvanize the EU into action for the first time, because that was clearly one of Putin's calculations, is that, you know, you can't galvanize the EU into doing anything, um, just because of the infighting and the vested interests in Italy and, and Serbia are good friends of Russia, and uh, 
so is Austria, and they, that's always kept the sanctions like down. Uh, and the fact that everybody unanimously voted for it together, I think, was a miscalculation. He overdid it. Um, and now he's just got himself trapped into this, this military route where he's just escalating steadily, step by step. It's getting steadily more and more violent, trying to put Zelensky into an impossible place so that he has to capitulate and secede to the demands. Yeah. Um, and the Ukrainians are being incredibly brave, but I was just watching him walk, talk to the, the Bundestag today, and he's there, uh, he's got dark rings under his eyes, he hasn't shaved for four days, he looks absolutely haggard, and he actually lambasted the German lawmaker saying, "You, you where are you? Yeah. We're, we're fighting for your values, and yet you've refused to come and help us. It is bitterly disappointed and angry. Um, I want to actually get to the potential deal that was uh, discussed today, but I want to return first to the, um, since we're talking about how all this affects Russia with the, the foreign assets that, that were seized or the foreign, I'm not sure the right word, the, all the gold and, and, and the central bank's reserves. Yeah. Um, I think I understand the, the economics now, but my first instinct was, why would you leave all that money in, in a foreign bank? But I think, and, and I under, understand it's, to, it's, it's a way of sanction-proofing the country and it was useful for Russia in 2008 and 2014. But could you explain that very quickly, why, that, yeah, why, why Russia was so intent on building up those, uh, those reserves? So to put it in perspective, the last official numbers they released was $643 billion, including 132 in gold, a little bit of IMF money, and, and some and spread across a bunch of currencies. Um, and that includes dollar, yen, uh, what is it, yuan, Chinese yuan, which is unusual, um, and euros. And the CBR has been reducing the amount of dollars it has because it was clear that the Americans were going to go after their money. What wasn't clear is they go after those euros. Mm. And to give you an idea of how much money this is, it covers nearly a year and a half of imports they can pay, and they have enough money to pay Russia's entire external debt off and still have a hundred billion dollars left over so that's an insane amount of money normally governments keep three months worth of import cover and you leverage up the the economy the debt in the states is uh, over a hundred and most of the european countries is over a hundred and italy is over 200 percent of gdp and russia is 20 percent and they only keep some debt because it's useful to have some debt so this is a huge cash pile completely runs against all economic theory you don't need so much money and as I say, it was used to um, sanction-proof Russia because you can just pay for imports for a year. If your debt gets sanctioned, you just buy it back, the whole lot. Nobody can do that. And the surprise was that when you have this reserves, you need to make a little bit of return on it in order to fight inflation, to keep its value. So you have to invest it into something. So the, the preferred asset that you invest into is the UST bill because they're considered to be the safest investment in the world. And so Chinese have got $3 trillion invested in American T-bills. And the Russians had much less. They had like one or 200 billion, um, which they've now withdrawn most of it. But you still need to put it somewhere. So they put, well, they had 130 in physical gold, but then Russia makes gold. So all that gold is sitting in a vault in Moscow. And then they had um, another 250 billion thereabouts that they'd put with central banks, commercial banks, and into European paper like, you know, Gilson and Bundes, um, 
uh, bonds mm. that pay some sort of interest in order just to fight inflation. And you chose the safest things possible. And you lend the money to another central bank. Central banks do this all the time because it provides liquidity to the, the local bank. And so they pay a little bit of interest, but it's a central bank. So the central banks do not go bust. Right. So that should be as safe as it gets. So this is normal. However, there's no international treaty guaranteeing your money and your access to it. But nobody expects a central bank to seize your money. It's just unheard of. I mean, it's actually happened a few times before, I think three or four times, but always with small countries mm. um, and, and sort of crazy countries. Um, and this is the first time it's happened to such a big economy and on such a scale. And as I say, um, the more we look at it, the more we're convinced that the Kremlin just simply was not expecting this. Um, and they won't be able to get money back. It's gone. Right. Half their reserves, $300 billion. Right. With that, do you see any changes in, and I guess this is dependent on how long the war goes on, um, do you see any changes in Russian fiscal policy, economic policy? Um, I heard you when when i th- i think on radio warner when when the mmt was brought up you you pointed to covid that this is already like it's not russia's not in, in a unique situation there was increase there was money given out <laughs> and could that how is could there be some could that be revived is that a change like like a more significant change in russia than in other countries what what might we see going forward well they're already in crisis mode and Nabulina, who's in charge of the central bank, you know, she's been through multiple crises. I mean, these are battle-hardened veterans of financial crisis, so they know exactly what to do. And they've come out with a standard um, set of measures, um, which is to clamp down on conversion. Um, they also demanded all of the people earning dollars, exporters, have to surrender 80% of their dollars to the central bank to get hold of more dollars. Um, the population can't take out more than 10,000 US dollars from their bank accounts. Um, they closed down the stock market, which has been closed for a week and a half now. They um, closed down the repo market, which is a way of banks to change their bonds into cash. Um, they flooded the banking system with liquidity, with rubles, um, in order to keep it going. So that's still functioning fine. We're looking at the interbank market. If that freezes up, then we'll have a bank crisis, but that continues to function normally. And um, in terms of macro policy, I mean, what do you do? Nabulina immediately hiked rates um, 20 to 20%, you know, more than doubled them. 20% is going to crush, kill the economic growth going forward. And they've been cutting rates for seven years, and then suddenly you put this massive break on the economy in order to try and stabilize the ruble. The ruble's lost half its value. That hurts everybody, anyone with ruble savings. You know, they've done, been down this road many times because it just halves your savings. Uh, it means Russians can't go afford to go abroad anymore, and they love traveling. Um, and I don't know, but a lot of people hold dollars in a in, you know, glass jar under the bed, um, which sort of proves them from, from the worst of the crisis. And having been through eight of these crises, everybody's got contingency plans. But the, um, the, the, the and unemployment, I mean, you know, you've had 200 Western companies pull out, which has added... 150, 200,000 people to the unemployment queue in a week. And so the, the social ministry is um, going to roll out today or tomorrow um, a plan. Social spending, they're going to dump some cash on the, uh, on the workforce, pay some wages, um, increase minimum wage, 
um, the social safety net functions, and there'll be more of that. Um, but it's all like firefighting stuff, this at the yeah. moment. Um, it's just trying to stop a meltdown. Fair. Right. I guess the uh, uh, last thing to talk about would be the uh, uh, negotiations which are happening today, uh, 17th of March, that um, look, like uh, like you said earlier, uh, off mic, substantial, like they'd actually like go ahead with this peace plan. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, what's on the table is uh, a kind of neutrality by Ukraine, uh, no foreign bases, but they're still allowed to have an army. Uh, 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 Russian as a language being recognized within Ukraine in some sort of official mm-hmm. capacity. Um, so I, I'm kind of curious with that in mind. Um, do you think the sanctions are reversible? Or is this kind of like can't get the genie back in the bottle kind of situation? Have we Have we pushed Russia into finding these alternatives, staying with these alternatives, maybe moving more towards like China with this uh, never going back to SWIFT, staying on this this system? Like, what do we, what do we think? It spits back. Uh, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, from the, the items in the deal, um, everything you mentioned, particularly neutrality, Ukraine's basically conceded that because Zelensky's realized that they'll never be let into NATO. So. Yeah. And it was neutral in the constitution before 2014. So actually, it's not a big change. They can go back to that. The two issues that remain on the table um, are Kiev is supposed to recognize Russia's sovereignty over Crimea. Mm -hmm. And the Russians are also asking for Kiev to recognize the autonomy of the Donbass. And I, I think at this point, Ukraine has probably let Crimea go because at the end of the day, it is mainly full of Russians. It always has been. Yeah. Um, the Donbass is much more difficult. So the prospects for doing a deal remain up in the air. Mm. But in terms of if there was one, if it was done now, significant damage has been done, but it's not that bad. Okay. Um, so in order, th- there is a possibility to roll off some of the sanctions. Um, and again, as I said, as we've discussed, I mean, there's all this problem with the commodities. Um, so something like easing the SWIFT sanctions, you could keep them on VTB and Spare, the two biggest banks, mm. which would do significant damage. But you would ease them on a lot of the other functional banks that are doing these commodity deals, gold trading on oil deals and what have you. Because the oil traders freezed up too. The traders won't touch Russian oil mm. because it's toxic. And the Chinese, even Chinese banks won't issue letters of credit for Russian oil deals. So if you took those some of those sanctions off, then and that sent oil prices up to whatever it is, 140. But if you took some of the swift sanctions on, then then your commodity marks would settle and the prices would all come down, which is actually in everybody's interest. Yeah. But um, and the thing with this is everyone's so shocked. I mean, they were shocked by Crimea and they're doubly shocked mm-hmm. by this, by an invasion of another country, which hasn't happened since the Second World War. So no, the sanctions won't come off any speed at all. There'll be some practical tweaks to do with our own interests of commodities that we need or business that we have. But it will take years to do this. Um, And the nature of the the Russian economy has just been fundamentally changed in so much as in the previous crises, it could always bounce back because it remained at, at base a market economy with an open current account, open borders for trade. And you could exchange your profits the next day. And what's happened now is that it's no longer a market economy in the sense that the sanctions restrict everything. The state has taken over 
running a lot of the things that uh, it needs to keep going. Um, and the trade regime, the currency regime is no longer open, it's closed. Hmm. And so the ability for the economy to bounce back has been severely hampered. So it resigns Russia to, I don't know, decades of stagnation. I mean, for as long as Putin is alive. And um, Putin will try and undo that, but I don't think anybody's going to be particularly willing to do that, particularly the states, because if you look at it in uh, geopolitical terms, that Russia was a problem and it's a rival, and then Biden wants to move on to deal with China. But what's happened to the Russian economy has just been crushed. It's no longer a rival, and it's not going to play much of a role internationally. Mm. That suits America fine, because they've actually got rid of that problem now, and he can move on to China and deal with China on its own, and not the China-Russia combination that was growing as a result of these conflicts. So um, geopolitically, there's no motivation at all. The last thing I'll say on that, the one uh, glimmer of hope is that the U.S. sanctions were put on by presidential executive order, and they weren't legislated by the House. Hmm. If it's legislated by the House, they never come off, ever. I mean, Jackson Pollock, uh, Yannick, took 20 years to come off. If it's a presidential executive order, he signs a piece of paper and they're gone. Right. And so that gives you the possibility of doing deals with Putin or whoever replaces him down the road and taking them off much faster. So they're not necessarily going to stay forever. There is a mechanism for getting rid of them relatively easy if everybody's happy with each other. That's a big if. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Uh, kind of just on the global, uh, like the global perspective of Russia is that we've been kind of focusing in the sense of Russia's relationship with Europe and the United States and whatnot. But how has this been affecting their massive like leaps that they've been making an investment in South America, which is very odd also as well of that they have a lot of political influence in like support for current actions that they're doing militarily in Russia. Like, I mean, for example, at least just like media wise, the largest media outlets that are international in a lot of South American countries are things like RT and Russian owned media things. Mm. How is this playing uh, for say Russia's like Russia's legitimacy on the global scale is obviously incredibly affected, but how is it affected within these countries of these like newer markets, quote unquote, uh, opening themselves up to as of late? Great question. Uh, I actually just posted this morning a long blog um, looking at exactly this, the wider world. Mm. Because we're seeing this, you know, as Europeans through our European eyes, and we're all shocked and outraged um, that Russia invaded the free and democratic, happy Ukrainian <laughs> people. But if you look at if you step back and look at it from the perspective of the other emerging markets, then um, I was reading a blog about Middle East and um, Africa, and they're not happy. They're not comfortable with this. Um, They see it as the deterioration of global order. South America, too, also friendly, very friendly with Russia, because Russia and Putin have gone out of his way to build up relations with all of these other emerging markets. At the Security Council um, vote to condemn Russia, China abstained, so did India. And India has very good ties with Russia. It relies on it for military, energy, and um, increasingly commodities. And the Indians just said this week that they're going to do a deal and buy lots of more more commodities, oil, metals, fertilizer, uh, at deeply discounted prices. 
and the Chinese too, just throw open their grain markets. Um, but if you look at the General Assembly vote, the same vote to condemn Russia, then although it over, overwhelmingly went against Russia, 143 votes, I think it was, like, there was another 50 plus votes that were just absten- uh, abstentions. And if you look at who was abstaining, all of Central Asia abstained, yeah. and most of Africa, and several of the South Americans. And you have to think, if you were Putin, you're looking at, right, this is America and a bunch of countries in Europe, of which France, Britain, and uh, Germany count, and the rest are tiny. And the southern, the Balkans, West Balkans, those are all Russian friends anyway, and Italy is actually quite friendly with Russia too. So I'm dealing with like half a dozen countries here who are causing me huge problems. But if I look further afield at the G20, then those are actually mostly my friends. So I can't do business with Europe, but just, you know, screw them. I'm going to go and do business with the rest of the world. And it's actually going to get a fairly decent reception with all of them. And whether that's enough to replace, because those G7 countries are hugely powerful. But economically, the emerging markets now is bigger, richer than the developed world. And the future is in the emerging markets. So if he's calculating like that, that's a bold move, and it's probably like several decades too early. Um, but uh, it's not entirely stupid. I mean, they can actually make quite a decent living for themselves, mm. cooperating with the others. And the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China in particular, have already formed a political organization where they're allied with each other and supporting each other. And that's, that's a significant chunk of global GDP and, and population too. So I, is that a Cold War? Is this a new Iron Curtain? People are bandying that kind of things around. But it is um, a big change in the way that the globe's economy is run. And the Americans are already leaning on the Chinese to try and stop them doing business. And China has significant business with uh, the West, Europe and, and America in particular. Yeah. So that's, I think, going to be our story going forward. It's, it's going to be all of the machinations and yeah. I remember seeing- cat fights. I do remember seeing stories of China being just incredibly pissed that, like, what is it, the, the Iron Silk Road, which required, like, relatively easy transport between, like, what, Russia, Belarus, and Poland, mm. basically been, like, this calls that into question a little bit. So, yeah, they're, 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 they're looking for peace as well, I'd say. Um, China always do what's in China's best interests, exactly. and they have Russia's back on the geopolitical thing where they don't like America dictating, and clearly they're in the crosshairs because they're going to be next after Russia, so they're, they're not happy at all. But then on the same time, the commercial level business, they're, they're also deeply integrated, and um, they like that. They're making lots of money from the West, and they want yeah. to keep those relations, so they, they're, they're very afraid of being sanctioned themselves. So that limits the amount of support that it'll give to Russia. Like, I feel like the last 10 years of China has been, like, China's concentrated efforts on, like, wooing Western Europe, particularly, mm. uh, and getting them access to those markets. Yeah, I think probably, like, the perfect example of that is that then immediately after Russia invaded, everyone was waiting for them the next, well, what would be the next morning in China, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs mm. response to it, and they still have been relatively diplomatic the last what three weeks now we're going into it where they have really like given the perspective of like we understand russia's position but we also understand the sense of you know ukrainian civilians they don't i mean like 
at least from the from from the bits that I've I've been having to cover from the from uh, the the mofa, which I love that, <laughs> um, has been a continuous, very diplomatic approach, but yet also very much not like still giving into the like. Um, I, I would I would argue like the pro-European, you know, NATO rhetoric of it, but being like, yeah, I mean, China's China's, you know, very much I think aware of where they sit entirely within this. Yeah, they're they're biding their time, and the absence, uh, the abstention at the the UN security meeting sort of sums it up. You know, like we're we're not going to condemn Russia, but we're not actually going to use our veto and like. I, I do remember the the morning after the invasion. Uh, um, I remember a lot of American media particularly being like, oh, they're going to invade Taiwan. And I just remember saying, sitting there being like, I feel like for China to come out on top of this, all they have to do is nothing. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, and, look, and look, six months down the line, um, the war is over. Sanctions remain. Russia's got a serious problem selling its oil and gas. And China steps in and they're like, all right, all these companies that are going teetering on the air, we'll buy them 10 cents on the dollar. That means that we, China, who have no energy resources, have no metal resources, we now become major stakeholders in the world's biggest nickel producer, in the world's biggest steel producer, in the world's biggest fertilizer producer. All this stuff they need, and they'll be able to snap it up, and the Russians will have no choice. Yeah. They'll have to do it. Right. Well, I think that's a... Um that's everything that we have for you. <laughs> it's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you so much. Uh, obviously, we'll be linking to all of your work in the show description for any of the listeners who want to read more and follow you on Twitter and whatnot. Uh, if I could give a little plug, um, if people are interested particularly in what's going on in Ukraine, then at the moment we have a thing called Editor's Picks. It's an email digest that comes out every day with the best stories from the last 24 hours. If you go to our site, intellinews.com, slash welcome mm. then there's that there's a link to our youtube channel and um also to our premium service if you're actually in the game and want really a lot of information we, we, we publish more behind the paywall on our premium service pro uh, excellent there will be links to all that in the description um ben thank you so much for coming on pleasure We'll probably be back next week. All have changed again. It's exactly. going so fast. <laughs> this episode will come out on Monday when all of the information will be useless. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Great. Thanks for inviting me. I got a. I got an outro. Mofa D's nuts. <laughs> We're doing the outro first, are we? <laughs> what the fuck is Mofa? The Ministry of Foreign Affairs in uh, China. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. like I said, Mofa, Mofa D's, D's nuts. nuts. Yeah, yeah. It's really, it's really, yeah. Like, literally, like shit like that goes through my head whenever I see a Mofa <laughs> come through. It'll just be like, oh yeah, one always. They're fucking based. Yeah. Like, China... The thing that's really interesting with China is that then there isn't, like... At least I'm not, like, certain of it, but there isn't, like, one specific minister of foreign affairs. It's just, like, a council of people who speak. Mm-hmm. They're all ballers. The Justice League. The Justice League of... Yeah. shit? <laughs> and, like... I can't believe they got Aquaman, Chinese Aquaman, for for uh, the MOFA. Uh, um, they like, a bunch of, like, deputies who speak continuously, but they're always, like... They're always either like people that I like. I I I, I think are Twitter personalities. <laughs> oh yeah, that's true. They they do. There are a lot of Twitter personalities. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Either of you follow the uh, the Chinese ambassador to Austria? He sounds he, cool. He seems like a chill guy. Does he? Yeah. Okay. He's just hanging out, posting photos of Austria and China. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the the uh, so that was that was a good interview. 
uh, um, still kind of reeling from the like 20% contraction of the Russian economy being like a possibility this year. That's, that's going to suck. Um, but yeah, thanks for, thanks again to Ben for coming on. That was important. Um, Sorry, now that you said most of these nuts, um, <laughs> all I can think about is uh, uh, Jan from Hola Hola Hola's current like handle on Twitter, which is uh, uh, Ligma Male Grindset, <laughs> <laughs> which is very good. Uh, I think he's had that for a while, but yeah, I just yeah. like it's it. Been, like it's been like 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 at least like four months. It, it hit me today. It just I just saw it at the right time. I was like, nah. <laughs> I finally got it now that you said it. Ligma Male Grindset. Yeah. <laughs> I was just always wondering what's a ligma male. Yeah, <laughs> I've uh, I've actually now that you mentioned that I'm leaving the podcast and starting an alpha podcast. Oh, cool! Yeah, so, yeah. Now that Russia's canceled, I'm going to have them on. <laughs> Vladimir Putin, come on my uh, come on my uh, come on my uh, my show. Say insane shit about like gender norms or whatever. I, like, I I haven't had the chance to look at that new speech of his. It, it doesn't look great. Um, oh yeah, he's also like looking horrible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Looks, yeah. Like, I know. I, I know. Everyone was like going into this whole thing when Elon Musk threatened to him fight. He's like, he does judo. He's ex KGB. But I'm just looking at modern Vladimir Putin. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. modern Vladimir Putin is like definitely. I still think he'd win because I feel like he's the only one of those two who's actually willing to take a life. Whereas I don't think Elon Musk <laughs> oh, is willing sure, to kill. I'm pretty sure Vladimir Putin has taken a life. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah I don't. No, yeah. There's no speculation on. But that. I, I think Elon if, Musk is absolutely a, a, a computer desk Eichmann. He can't. Yeah. He can't look anyone in the eye. I just. He will literally be staring at the wall, like trying to choke you out. But you see, I think just looking at the ceiling. I think fifty percent chance what that fight would look like is. Um, do you ever? Do you ever like? Do you ever see like a fight in a movie? And then, like very shortly after that, you see a fight on the street in real life, oh, and what? Yeah, and it's just like two guys holding their shirt, like each other's shirts, and just like trying to grapple, but they're both like relatively equally matched and also incredibly not battle hardened. I feel like it would be that. No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> I, there is a uh, uh, <laughs> guys. We gotta wrap this up. It's supposed to be like a minute. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, uh, I want to. I, I do in all of this and all the stupidity. I do want to see Vladimir Putin just go sicko mode on Elon Musk. Yeah, it's the ultimate. Let them fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that's how. That's what the Russian economy is going to depend on. It'll be like when Floyd Mayweather fights. Uh, you know, the the third, the hidden Paul brother. Right? <laughs> That they're gonna have giant events at a casino at at a Trump hotel. I can't believe there's Russia. a third Paul brother, Vladimir <laughs> no, no, Paul. That's, that's Vladimir gonna be the reveal. Paul. Yeah, a secret Russian. Yeah, Vladimir Vladimir, a secret we, Russian. We made Paul our brother. own Logan Paul <laughs> yeah. in a lab in Novosibirsk. <laughs> Wow, they really do have a lot of domestic industry. He's made purely out of rare earth minerals. <laughs> they threatened to sag to cut off our Paul. Well, this is the thing. Twenty fourteen. This, this is the thing. Is that you know when when, when Russia yeah. was talking about the uh, uh, all the talk of the of the the bioweapons factory, you know, bioweapons facility. Sure, yeah, yeah. And that it was you know Slavic DNA, this and that, and that. <laughs> that wasn't actually. Oh, shout it, out to ASB military. I'm yeah. so sad they're banned. Um, no, what that really was is that they were trying to combine the Paul DNA with with Slavic, mm. yeah, yeah, unstoppable force of you know uh, Putin's version asterisk Antifa super soldiers. By the way, they're still fashion, sugar, <laughs> spice, and everything nice. And suddenly, is giant Z on a, on a beaker on the shelf. <laughs> Chemical Slav. Oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs>
this is derailed. That was a very good and serious conversation we had with Ben, but I'm I'm loving the fucking uh, uh, um, Powerpuff Girls brackets <laughs> Russian. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Welcome to the pod. <laughs> All right. We will catch you on the bonus episode. Uh, Ciao, ciao. Bye.